All right, so we're at 2.02. Hopefully you all can hear me right now. Um, if you can't, you know, send a message in the chat and we'll get that sorted out right away. Uh, I wanna thank you all for joining the webinar today uh, and for making time in your day to come learn about deep tech with me. Uh, so as a little bit of background, uh, my name is Josh Siegel. I'm an assistant professor at Michigan State University in computer science and engineering. Uh, I've worked with MIT boot camps for a number of years now, developing different programs. And uh, so this webinar today that you're tuned in for uh, will have me describing deep technology, some of the enabling technologies, uh, key innovations and application areas that we consider to be deep technology. And at the end, we'll get into a little bit more about what the deep tech program at MIT boot camps is going to be like uh, in Cambridge in June. So. Uh, again, just to point out, we do have a question panel here, so you can ask questions throughout. I'll be trying to check in. If I'm gazing off sideways, it's because I'm checking in on that panel, uh, just to see if there's anything that pops up in real time. If not, we're going to leave time for questions at the end, and we'll try to get to as many of those as we possibly can. So we'll start with a little bit of an agenda for today and what you can expect over the next uh, 45 minutes to an hour. And we'll start with a little bit of my background. So what's my expertise? What do I know about deep technology and the constituent technologies? We'll define deep tech. Uh, a lot of you have probably heard the term deep tech or deep technology used by venture capitalists primarily. Um, so let's try and put some structure around that and make sure we're all thinking about the same thing. Uh, we'll look at deep tech enablers. So what makes technology and deep tech possible today? We'll look at a couple different application areas. So things like IoT, AI, self-driving cars. Uh, and then we'll get into the description of boot camps, conclude and have time for a couple different questions here. Okay, so my own background, um, like I said, I'm an assistant professor at Michigan State in computer science and engineering. Uh, my research focuses on using the internet of things and making the internet of things more secure and efficient. So how do we put devices online in a way such that you know their battery lives uh, are sufficiently long that you don't need to replace batteries all the time, or that you can put critical infrastructure online like utilities, smart grid, um, and not worry about them being hacked too much. Uh, before coming to MSU and joining CSE up until January 1st of this year, actually, I had been a research scientist at MIT. Um, and prior to that, I'd done my bachelor's, master's, and PhD um, all in MIT mechanical engineering, working under the guidance of Professor Sanjay Sarma, who some of you may know. So my work there was on IoT, cybersecurity, pervasive sensing, and connected vehicles. So I do have hands-on expertise with a lot of the technologies that we'll talk about today. Um, I've also founded a number of companies. The two most recent ones are Carnot and Data Driven. Carnot, for you mechanical engineers in the room, is a little bit of a play on the thermodynamic cycle, the Carnot cycle. But uh, we also built open source hardware to let you connect your vehicle to the internet so that you could do things like predict when it was going to break down, remotely lock and unlock doors, um, track where your vehicles are going, monitor fuel economy, and so on. Uh, more recently, I worked on a company called Data Driven, and Data Driven is like Shazam for cars. So many of you have probably worked with Shazam. Um, it's an application that listens to the radio and tells you what song is playing. And I do the same thing for vehicles. So I listen to cars, I can tell you when to replace the air filter, when to change the engine oil, uh, when your tires need air and so on. Um, and that was prior to coming to MSU, but very much aligned with the research that I've done. And of course, I'm involved with MIT boot camps and a couple of programs that I direct myself called IoT boot camps. 
Um, I've organized the IoT bootcamp for MIT. I organized a couple different professional programs through MIT and independently. Uh, and so that's the context that I bring to this, right? So I've got the education element, I've got the entrepreneurial element, and I've got the, the research element here as well. So we'll start by defining deep technology because as I said, a lot of you have probably seen the term before and nobody ever really defines it. Right? You might've seen it in the context of a TV show like Shark Tank, or you might've seen it if you were browsing venture capital from websites. Um, everyone kind of throws it about, but nobody really agrees on what it is. And so I'm gonna try and put a little bit of structure behind that and give you a sense of my own definition of deep technology and how we think about it, both at MIT and at Michigan State University as well. So I think it's pretty clear to everyone that the world is changing pretty rapidly right now, right? Uh, I mean, we have new capabilities at our fingertips, but we also have new problems that are growing. And so we're facing emerging challenges that are both meaningful and significant in scale. Uh, they impacted a large number of people. They might have a large number of dollars at stake when we think about these problems. And these are new problems that come about because of things like globalization or population growth or urbanization. Um, so we face new classes of challenges. And we also, to some extent, have to acknowledge that uh, solutions within a silo have been pushed to the limit, right? So if we're innovating in mechanical engineering and only mechanical engineering, you know, that's a well-researched field. We've gotten pretty far along with it, but improvements that we see are not quite as revolutionary as they once were. And so in order to solve these pressing problems, we need to think about solutions that work across silos, that work across disciplines, right? And so the assertion here is that the world is changing rapidly and we have solutions that are feasible only because we become faithful to the problem rather than the discipline. And so that's a core tenant of deep technology. We're not thinking in silos. We're not thinking in, I'm a mechanical engineer, I'm an electrical engineer, I'm a software engineer, uh, I'm in medicine. We actually have to look at innovations across these silos and think about how, how can we apply things holistically to solve these problems in, in a way that we haven't been able to before. Um, and so the opportunity behind deep technology is to think about problems that are meaningful, right? So things that actually impact real people, things that are significant. So there's a lot at stake if we can solve them effectively and things that are frankly barely feasible, things that last year or two years ago we wouldn't have been able to do. But now thanks to the new technology available to us or our new way of thinking about old technology, uh, we can come up with solutions to these problems. So that's kind of the motivation. So deep technology really builds upon technical discovery and convergent innovation. This, this concept that we have new ideas and that we can apply things across disciplines in a way we haven't been able to before. But also it requires intellectual capital and specialized skill in order to implement. So intellectual capital, that's thinking about how does your company work within itself? How does it work with other people? Um, what technology do we have available to us? What resources do we have? Uh, uh, I don't know about the recording being shared. I believe it will be. I think it's gonna be posted online. Um, but what resources do we have at our disposal to grow these capabilities, right? And also things like structural cap, uh, capital. Do we have a framework in place so that we can not only innovate, but bring these things to market? Um, and so just as a little bit of an example, you know, in, in framing this problem, right? We know it's meaningful, feasible, and significant, but it requires this intellectual capital. And so that's why something like 
Uber's core business model of ride sharing is not deep technology. Right? That's a new way of thinking about a problem that we could have solved years ago. It's not a disruptive technology. Um, but Uber's research into autonomous vehicles, that is deep technology because that's changing how we use cars and changing how we see transportation writ large. So those of you who did a little bit of sleuthing beforehand probably found some of these definitions for deep technology. Um, like I said, they're primarily things that you'll find if you're looking for investment and you find a firm that says they invest in deep technology. Sometimes they're looking for a particular thing. Sometimes they say we're looking for deep technology as a way of being dismissive to certain ideas that they don't think are quite hard enough. Right? So if you go on Quora or if you go to these VC sites, you might find definitions like a set of cutting, aid, uh, cutting edge and disruptive technologies based on scientific discoveries, right? Or we're engineering meet scientific discoveries or a tangible discovery or commercialization with potential for world changing impact. So I think that those kind of get to the point of what deep technology is, but they're not exactly what I have in mind when I think of deep tech. Um, so my definition and the definition that I bring to this MIT bootcamp program that we'll be teaching is deep technology is something that is risky hard, only recently possible, something that solves a real problem, and something that is not yet ubiquitous. A lot of these things become ubiquitous over time. And so that actually leads me to my next point about deep technology. So deep tech doesn't remain deep forever. And so technology, you've probably seen these plots before. This is like the Gartner hype cycle. You have a technology trigger, what's the opportunity? What am I going to solve? What am I going to bring to market? How do I get people to adopt it? And you have this adoption cycle here too that shows, you know, I can get early adopters, but at a certain point I need to get it to mass adoption. And if you get there, my assertion is that things start out as deep tech when they're really hard and they solve meaningful problems, but then they become high tech later. And eventually they just become technology. And so we think about how our perception changes for what problems are hard, uh, what problems are hard to solve today, what problems were hard to solve 10 years ago, and where are we now with that technology. And so if we were to teach another deep tech bootcamp in five years or 10 years, you know, we'd hope that we wouldn't see any of the same topics because deep technology trickles down and just becomes high tech and then technology. Um, and I am watching the chat and so we'll get to those questions too. Right. So I think that deep technology, if we do it right, is something that one day becomes a basic need. You think about your life and you think about the things that you use and realize that you can't live without them. They just become so ingrained in, in how you operate. And so there's something called um, the Cano model, right? And the Cano model says that as we, as, we, uh, as we become accustomed to certain characteristics of a product or a technology, uh, as technology gets better at meeting our expectations, as it gets better at meeting our basic needs, things like air conditioning, right? eventually they just become necessities. They used to be luxuries and now we take them for granted. And so the best deep tech is technology that starts out hard where we can cross that chasm in terms of adoption here and we just commoditize it. And so that's the background that we take when we think about deep technology, right? Something hard to do requires intellectual capital solves a real problem and eventually it becomes boring. If it becomes boring, then we've done our job. So as I personally think about deep technology, as of April 2019, the here and now, my own definition of deep tech includes things like the internet of things, 
connected devices. We've got artificial intelligence, and some of you may say artificial intelligence has been around since the 1950s, and that's true. But we're only recently able to do it justice. The concept has been around. Now we have new capabilities on how we can implement this in products and services, how we can bring it to market, how we can scale it up. Um, and it's not yet ubiquitous. And so that's one of the tenets of deep tech. We need to make it ubiquitous. Right? Things like robotic automation that includes drones and self-driving vehicles. Um, we've got virtual and augmented reality. So can we create secondary spaces in which we can work, play, reside? Uh, context store is cybersecurity because the internet is a scary place right now. Uh, and, and we can use things like AI to make it smarter and more secure and blockchain. Um, so all of those are topics that we get to in the boot camp coming up in June from the 15th to the 21st in Cambridge. But there are other deep tech areas as well, things like quantum computing or uh, brain and conversational interfaces with computers, new modes of interaction with these smart devices. Things like smart utilities and infrastructure, connected cities, even things in healthcare like AI-assisted drug discovery, those are all deep technology. So what makes deep tech possible? What are the things that enable this convergence of ideas across disciplines? So deep tech benefits from data and pervasive sensing is one of the core tenets of deep technology. Pervasive sensing means we get information from devices anywhere, anytime, and we get it in abundance. So if you think about sensing and where sensing really started and where it is today, um, some of the earliest commodity sensors that you would be able to buy would be for car airbags. Those are accelerometers. They detect rapid deceleration. They inflate your airbag. That began to commoditize the hardware that then we could put into things like the Nintendo Wii. So we had game controllers that used what are called MEMS, microelectromechanical systems, to sense acceleration and rotation. Now, if you look at your cell phone, you probably have 30 to 40 different types of sensing within it. You've got acceleration, you've got rotation, you've got audio, you have light sensors, you have compasses and magnetic field sensors in there. So pervasive sensing is a key enabler. Deep tech also requires advanced networking, and that's something that we're coming up upon right now. So we've got things like 5G, which is millimeter wave radios. Those are ultra low latency, ultra high bandwidth, and almost ready for prime time, although they're not quite there yet. So that's one of the topics that we'll dig into, exploring more in depth what makes 5G feasible and what the big challenges are to implementation. We've got things like low power wide area networks as well. So things like LoRa and Sigfox. You can have a 10 year battery life on a device now, but you can only send 10 bits per second. Still for a lot of applications like forest monitoring, that's really useful. It enables a world of new applications and things like ubiquitous and point-to-point -point connectivity like Bluetooth Low Energy or Bluetooth 5.0. We also have changes in computing architectures. We've got things that make computing more efficient and that paralyze things. Right? So we've got CPU architectures that have high power cores but also low power cores. And so new phones, when you buy them, they have ultra high power processors that can crunch through numbers really quickly but they also have super efficient processors that do background processes so that you save your battery life. We have cloud computing, computing that's infinitely scalable over time and space. All you need to do is spend a little bit more money. And we have things like GPUs that do a lot of arithmetic in parallel, enabling things like neural networks. Power is another key innovation behind deep technology and one that a lot of people don't think about because they're too busy thinking about the devices in their hands. 
but those have batteries. They need to, to run 24 hours a day too. And so we see things like lithium ion batteries developing. We see ultra capacitors becoming more mainstream in the market. We see energy harvesting improving, things like solar screens on cell phones. Um, we see vibration sensors that not only sense vibration, but actually convert that back into energy that your phone can use. Things like wireless power. So many of you probably have wireless chargers for your cell phone today, and even long range, high power wireless energy delivery. So those are key enablers where if you can't get the ultra low power radio, maybe your battery can get better too. And so that's behind a lot of the innovations that we're seeing in deep tech. So deep tech also reaches out to touch the physical world with distributed actuators. Actuators are things that push back on the world, right? Sensors take information in from the environment, actuators push back out on the environment. Um, so there are things like tactors in the Apple Watch and that taps your wrist when you get a notification on your calendar. But these are also being used in things like virtual reality. There are olfactory actuators that can make you feel like you're somewhere because it presents a sense of smell like you're actually in another location. And obviously advances in things like deep and machine learning support deep technology as well. Things like transfer learning, learning a model on one set of data and then extending it to a new class. Reinforcement learning, where algorithms learn by trying to optimize an objective function. And Google's DeepMind has trained machines how to walk using this. Or things like adversarial networks that generate photorealistic data synthetically so this image on the right-hand side is from NVIDIA research. Uh, they captured a particular image and then they were able to change the weather on it using adversarial neural networks that pit computer against computer to come up with synthetic data that can fool a human. Right, so what are examples of deep technology in a little bit more depth? Those are the enablers. What can we do if we put those pieces into place? So this is basically the list I talked about earlier, IoT, AI, automation, VR and AR, cybersecurity and blockchain. And this is gonna come kind of fast and furious and that's the way that the boot camps are taught as well. Um, those focus a little bit more on the technical depth, but the pace is just as quick. We go through about three semesters of college courses in the span of six days. Right, so IoT, right, the internet of things. You've probably heard the term. You probably are familiar with the fact that devices um, have long been connected to one another, usually point to point where you have something like a Fitbit talking to your cell phone. But more recently, we see that devices are forming larger networks, right? And not only do they form larger networks, but they're able to form extensible development platforms where suddenly I can take data from my car and have it talk to my smart home and have my home tell my office that I'm gonna be late to work because I didn't get out of bed early enough. And so we see IoT is really building towards something like this, where everything is connected all of the time. And it's just very pervasive. And so IoT is a little bit different than machine to machine. What makes IoT different is the fact that we have a confluence of four technologies underpinning it. We've got sensing, so we can generate data from devices and services. We have connectivity to move information where it's most useful. We have inference, which turns signals into intelligence so we can understand what's really going on in our data. We have action so that we can close the loop and we can have meaningful output. Right. So these advances in sensing connectivity, inference and action pair up with similar to deep tech, sensing, processing and connectivity to let us generate massive amounts of data. So 90% of all data in human history were generated in the past, uh, past two years. 
And so IoT is just the series of devices and services that connect to one another intelligently, and they can sense, infer, and act, and do so at scale. So there's obviously a lot of value at stake here when you have so much information and you've got billions of connected devices. As of 2015, there were 16 billion connected devices. By 2035, uh, the projections are much higher, especially when you consider that the definition of IoT continues to grow as more and more edge devices join the internet. So there's a lot at stake here, right? IoT is transforming industries already, but it's not quite ubiquitous yet. So some of you have probably rented cars at an airport before and the process is painful. You have to go to the check-in counter, they scan your license, they have to go find the key, they have to go get the car. It takes forever. One of the first consumer-facing IoT companies is Zipcar. And the way that they changed that paradigm was they put the keys and your driver's license online. They also, in that same way, allowed you to distribute your, your uh, infrastructure, your capital assets, because no longer did you need to park cars at the airport, you could just leave them on the street. Slow transactions, things that are manually entered, you can automate using IoT. So we have EasyPass in the US for automatic toll collection. Uh, some of you have probably gone to the gym and seen that it's massively underutilized and thought about how much that equipment costs. Right? So IoT lets companies like Peloton have a personal trainer work for a thousand people at the same time. So you get real-time statistics updated uh, while you're taking a class and the trainer can call you out if you're slacking off or put together a program just for you. IoT takes things that once were durable goods like cars where we buy it and they stay the same for their whole lifetime and it makes them malleable. We can upgrade the software now and things like a Tesla. And we can also move infrastructure. So why do we need an electrician to move a light switch when we can put that on the internet and move lights without rewiring? Told you this was gonna be fast. We're going through a lot of things right now, but now we're getting into artificial intelligence. And so the key tenant of AI is that it distills information into insights that we can use to inform people and processes. And so some of you may be familiar with uh, at least apocryphal tales of John Steinmetz at the Ford factory. But the idea behind this is that Steinmetz could listen to a machine like a generator and tell you what was wrong with it and mark what's wrong with it with an X with a piece of chalk. Right? And so AI is basically automating what Steinmetz could do, listening to a machine and telling you only the things that you need to know, taking that huge bulk of data and turning it into the actionable things. And so data scientists try and emulate what Steinmetz did. They try and find the signal within the noise. It's like tuning an old time radio. And deep learning is one of the technologies behind AI that you've probably heard about. Right? So AI is just this concept that we can automate a lot of human intelligence tasks. Some of them are easy, like playing chess. Some of them are hard, like self-driving. Um, deep learning does this in a way that's inspired by biology. So it creates the series of neurons or perceptrons. Perceptrons take input data. They learn how to process that data and they spit out an output that just says one or zero. And you can build up these more and more complicated networks to figure out the implications of the data that you look at and what to do in response to it. So an example I like to give of how deep learning learns is this example of separating cats and dogs, right? So if you ask a person, is that a cat or a dog, by and large, they're gonna be able to do it. But there aren't really good rules that tell you what's a cat and what's a dog and how to differentiate the two. 
It turns out people learn these rules by observation. These are called latent rules. They're never expressly stated to you, but through observation and context, you eventually figure out whether it's a cat or a dog. And so a computer looking at this picture might say, okay, I've got it. All cats are black, all dogs are beige, all cats have yellow eyes, all dogs have brown eyes. Cats always have their tongues out, right? And dogs don't. And cats have stubby faces and dogs have long snouts. But if you look at these two pictures, that's not enough to understand your full worldview. And so what a, what a neural network in deep learning really does is looks at billions and billions of different samples and figures out, okay, what do I have in common between this set, right? And what do I have in common among this other set? What are the features that are invariant? And so if you look at another picture, you know, you might be able to strike out all cats are black, all dogs are beige, or that all cats have yellow eyes and all dogs have brown eyes, but you can add new features. Things like cats tend to uh, have pointy ears while dog ears are floppier. And the more you do this, the better your rules become. And yeah, you can't fit 100% of the time, but over time, that's how things like neural networks can learn to recognize a face or lane markers on a road. You feed it lots and lots of information and then these latent rules come out. Right. So the way that these uh, AI networks work, the way that deep learning really works is by using these perceptrons, like I talked about. They're basically digital neurons. Those are the Lego bricks that you build entire networks around. They're just like synapses. They have an activation function. They see something and then they respond in some electrical way based on what it sees. And we can network these things together, these threshold logic units, to approximate the solution of really, really complex problems. So learning to play chess, like I said, that's easy. The rules are formal. We can write those down. You don't need deep learning for that. But learning how to drive, we do that through observation. Learning how to hold a polite conversation, we do that by understanding latent observations of protocols for engagement with people. And so that's all deep learning is. It's a way of observing, internalizing, and reacting to the environment. But it is important to learn uh, that computers are really good at remembering things and not reasoning things. And so that's one of the big gaps that we're now uh, innovating upon that makes AI deep tech as opposed to high tech because AI has been all around a really long time and it can remember, but now we're building towards reasoning with these new technologies, with this enhanced computation. And uh, just a little bit of technical background, the way that AI learns, the way that it looks at thousands of pictures of cats and dogs and figures out which is a cat and which is a dog is by something called backpropagation. So we feed these neural networks data the data are what we call labeled. Every picture has an associated cat or dog marker with it. And then we do something called backpropagation that looks at the measurement of error between your guess on the prediction and the actual ground truth, what that label said. And over time, you do that a billion times with a, uh, with a complicated enough network, then your network actually learns what a cat and a dog is. It can't tell you how it does it, but it can do it reliably. So what about automation? What are the opportunities here? Well, many of you probably spend a lot of time stuck in traffic. I know I'm in the car two hours every day commuting to work. So if we have things like self-driving cars, we can get that time back. There's also the potential to save lives. Right? So there's economic impact, there's time impact, there's also social impact. Annually, 1.3 million people die in car accidents, but Automated vehicles can respond better to accidents and either avoid them altogether or mitigate the consequences of them. But I do want to point out, just because it's a little pet peeve of mine, that these cars are automated. They're not autonomous. Right? Autonomy means free will. 
And so if you had a truly autonomous car, it would look something like this. You get in, you ask the car to take you to work, and the car says, I'm going to the beach today. So just for semantics sake, if you're talking to researchers who work in this area, you want an automated vehicle, not an autonomous vehicle. So this automation can improve transportation safety and efficiency. We've already got it in cars today. We've got things called ADAS, Automated Driver Assistance Systems. They're good at making sure that you don't crash into cars in your blind spot, that you don't rear end another vehicle, and they help you with parking too. When we think about automation, there are obviously different degrees of it, just like there are new drivers who are still figuring out how to parallel park, and then there are the pros who could do it almost literally with their eyes closed. And so, at least in the US, and actually this is more of a global thing, we have definitions for different levels of automation provided by the Society of Automotive Engineers. The level zero is like your typical car on the road 20 years ago. The driver does everything. Level one supports one critical function. So it could be lateral control, that's steering, so it'll switch lanes for you automatically or keep you in the same lane based on a vision system. Or it could be longitudinal control, things like velocity assistance for your vehicle, adaptive cruise control, automated braking. Level two does both of those things. So it supervises both steering and velocity at the same time. And then level three drives itself, but it makes human handoffs, right? So it says, I'm in way over my head here. I don't know what's happening at that roundabout, take over the wheel, but it gives you some time to respond. And so one could argue that there's a little bit, uh, well, we're, we're basically at level two in the market today, but some companies will tell you that they're at level three and I'm not gonna name them specifically, but in practice, we really are closer to level two than three. And so level one to three is what we call shared control. So it's kind of like a human riding a horse. The human at the end of the day has responsibility for it, but the horse is gonna try not to jump off cliffs, assuming it knows about them. Level four is where we start getting into full autonomy. And so this car can drive itself completely and never needs a human handoff, except it needs to be under a particular set of circumstances. So it could be on roads that are mapped out. We call that geofencing. It's a particular location. It could be under certain weather. It only does it if it's sunny. Um, there may be other constraints as well. Maybe it's only two hours a day that it works, but level four will never need a human handoff, assuming that you follow the conditions for it. And level five, there are no restrictions on it. And so this is the end goal. And there's a lot of debate in the automated vehicle community about whether or not we should focus on things like level three or if we should just jump to level five, because it actually turns out the human handoff part is one of the hardest parts to automate. Um, people take almost a minute to re-engage if they're not paying attention. So if they're sleeping or reading a book, you need to know a minute before you're going to hand off control that you're going to hand it off and then inform that user that they need to take over. So many companies are saying level three is something we shouldn't even be trying to do and we should go straight to level five. And so that's what companies like Waymo are trying to do. And just so that you're aware of the technologies that these cars use, self-driving typically is dominated by six sensors. So we've got cameras, that's for vision systems, things like lane finding. LIDAR, that's for measuring the physical environment around it. So am I going to rear end that car? Sonar, for low speed things like parking. Radar, for things like adaptive cruise control. Inertial measurement units, that's to improve your state estimate so that you know exactly where you are within the lane. And then things like encoders for odometry. So you can measure um, 
you can measure how far your wheels have turned. And so all of these things fuse together to give really good estimates of what your vehicle is doing, but also what the environment is like around it. So obviously there are a lot of implications if we can create fully autonomous vehicles. We could have things like housing in the suburbs become the preferred way for people to live, right? You don't have to worry about your commute anymore because now your car drives you into work. Your car could become your workspace. And there are social implications as well. Things like we can get parking, uh, parking lots back for land that we can reclaim for other purposes. So if you were to take all of the parking spots out of LA, you could actually get 200 square miles back. Think about what you could do with that. Think about the parks you could put, put in, the schools you could build there, the libraries you could put there. The space can be way better used because we design society around cars because we have to. But with automated vehicles, we won't anymore. And obviously these things are not standalone. They don't operate in a vacuum and so they need infrastructure. And so that's where the concept of things like smart cities comes into play connected infrastructure, things like sensor networks that can understand weather patterns and traffic patterns and where people are walking and what the pollution is like and optimize everything in real time. And so I would say, I think we're entering the era of automotive mobility 3.0. So we had the assembly line with Henry Ford commoditizing vehicles. We had the Toyota production system that's mobility 2.0 that's creating cars in a more efficient way. And now we're entering the world of mobility 3.0, where we might ask, do we even need a car or do we need a car in the same way that we used to use them? So all of this is feeding towards four potential states of future mobility, things that are uh, highly utilized and fully autonomous. So that could be Waymo, where you don't own your car, you actually subscribe to a service that picks you off, drops you off at work, and then that car goes along and picks someone else up. Um, we have things like Cruise, where you do own your own car but it's fully automated. We obviously have continued business as usual where we own and operate our own vehicles. Or there's also the element of shared mobility where the cars don't really do that much for you. So that's something like Zipcar. And just to give a little bit of context here on why there's such a market opportunity, this is the relative cost of all of these different models when you think about it on a per mile basis. So today it might cost me a dollar per mile to drive my vehicle. But if I hop into a shared Waymo vehicle, it might be 31 cents per mile. So that enables more mobility for more people in more places. And that's really going to be the root of a lot of uh, social and technological uh, innovation as well. We've got things like virtual and augmented reality. Some of you may have worked with systems like these already or seen them. The idea behind virtual reality is that we create synthetic interactive environments. We can put on a headset, and we can walk around and we feel like we're somewhere else. And it's not totally convincing yet, but the technologies are, are in place that make it a lot more convincing than it used to be. Um, so this is not like the virtual boy that Nintendo put out in the 1980s. This is uh, almost convincing when you use a, a professional headset right now. But beyond virtual reality, there's also something new coming out called augmented reality. And augmented reality takes the real world and overlays virtual elements into it. It might use things like the IoT to overlay sensor data in real time so that you know how hot that tray you took out of the oven is before you touch it. So these are just some examples of how you might see this data visualized. Um, and in the lower right-hand corner, you actually see a project that Team Bears did at the 2017 IoT bootcamp at MIT. Uh, so they created this game that took sensor data from an IoT device 
and use this visual code, it's called a fiducial, to project augmented reality onto a video of the real environment. In the upper right-hand corner, you see something from a company called Magic Leap, uh, and that's a virtual interface overlaid in the real world so that you can check your email while you're walking, which doesn't seem like a good idea to me, but someone thought it was a good idea. And it's actually becoming commoditized even today. So many of you have probably played Pokemon Go uh, or seen someone playing it. And so this is augmented reality being widely deployed. It goes to show that cell phones today can actually implement this technology that would have been impossible only five years ago. Setups can use something called inside out or outside in tracking. Outside in tracking tends to be more accurate, but it requires that you set up infrastructure. That's something like the HTC Vive. So you put up trackers in the corner of your room. It's constrained to a particular environment and then uh, the headset localizes itself using those trackers. Inside out tends to be less accurate, but a lot less expensive, easier to deploy and usable in different environments. Um, and so that's just a camera attached to the headset and it uses optical flow to figure out where you are within the room. The market is quickly saturating. So it started really getting commoditized with Google Cardboard, which is exactly what it looks like. It's a cardboard box you put your phone in. It uses those IMUs, those MEM sensors we talked about earlier to uh, localize itself and figure out its orientation. Then the HTC Vive was introduced, uh, there's the Oculus Rift, and then even PlayStation has a VR headset right now. And there are accessories that continue to improve immersion, things like tactile vests, so that if you're playing Call of Duty Modern Warfare or whatever the VR equivalent is, you feel like you're there. You feel the good and the bad, right? There are treadmills so that you can actually walk and it tracks where you're walking in VR. There are centimeters so that you can smell like you're there. And you can have surround sound so that you can localize yourself using audio as well. There's not been a lot of research around taste in VR. Um, I personally think that might be a good thing, but I'm sure that someone is working on it and they just haven't published it yet. And augmented reality is not too far behind, although there are only two major players here right now. There's Magic Leap, which was backed by Google, and then there's a Microsoft HoloLens. And if you get the opportunity to try these out, these are really remarkable pieces of technology, uh, well worth testing, right? There's also cybersecurity. We talked a little bit about that. The reason that I bring it up in the context of this lecture, but also that we talk about it in the context of the class is that security is a big impediment to a lot of startups. And so we'll be talking about entrepreneurship and how you build things, how you deploy things, how you do things in a way that is scalable and safe. Right? And so security is a huge impediment to things like deploying apps and services. If you share PII, personally identifiable information, you lose user trust, you lose your customer base and nobody's going to invest. For IoT, you're putting sensitive data on the internet. It turns out you can actually determine who's driving a car by looking at how they move their foot on the gas pedal. Right? And so things that we might not think about as being sensitive are actually more revealing than, than we might be aware of. And so we need security to protect that information. Things like AI, um, two weeks ago, there was a company that demonstrated an attack on Tesla where they put stickers on the road and got it to switch lanes. So adversarial networks can undermine your AI-based product and it could be catastrophic. Things like human machine interfaces, you can steal credit card data very easily. And obviously, like I said, things like self-driving cars too. And so where cybersecurity meets deep tech is an area that I actually did my PhD in. And it's saying we're connecting more and more devices to the internet 
but in so doing, these devices are getting less and less expensive, and that means that they have less and less computational capability. They're what we call constrained systems. They don't have a lot of RAM, they don't have a lot of CPU. Um, and so the crux of it is you can ask a device like this to do something dumb, and it does it. And there are billions of these out there now, literally billions with a B, um, and they're controlling things like steel forges. They're controlling things like power grids. And so that doesn't seem like a good idea. So the solution here is that you can do something called cognitive modeling. And so we'll go into this in the bootcamp in some depth. But the idea is if I give you a box with a frozen pizza in it and the box says put it in the microwave for 210 minutes, you're not going to do it you understand what a pizza is, you understand what a microwave is, and you understand that that's too long to cook it for because you understand uh, the interaction between these things and you understand your goals. And so it turns out you can actually use AI and what we call data proxies, which is like a fancy resource efficient digital twin. Um, you can use those techniques to make things like factories safer. And so this is work that we did on a factory where we had a voice activated robotic arm we gave it context limit. So we put the arm in a virtual factory. We said, here's the safe plane of travel for the arm. And when we give it a command, just like thinking about that pizza in the microwave, right? this thing in the cloud tests out the command and says, does that do what I thought it would? Is that outcome safe? And if it's not, then it blocks it. It realizes that it can't do it. And then it proposes an alternative that actually is safe. The other element of this cognitive aware security of this advanced cybersecurity is thinking about how we, um, how we put devices in a position to create negative unintended consequences. And so in my own home, about two years ago, I had a smart lock on my door. I had an Amazon Echo uh, in front of my TV and I had a webcam connected to the internet. And this was before the Mirai botnet came out. Um, and those of you who don't know, Mirai lets you actually take control over things like webcams over the internet. It uses SSH or Telnet or default passwords, but it compromises these devices and gives someone else full access to it. And we realized after thinking about this setup, you know, all of these independently are great. A webcam improves security, a smart lock improves security and convenience, the echo improves convenience. But you can form an attack where someone who hacks the webcam can talk through the two-way audio of the webcam tell the echo to unlock the door, and then the door unlocks. And what's worse is they can actually, taking advantage of the sensor capabilities, do this ultrasonically so that I can't hear the camera making the request. So you could make an ultrasonic request to turn off acknowledgement on the echo and then tell it to unlock the door. So it's a real threat. It's not something you really think about when you put these devices into your home. And so where cybersecurity comes in is this idea of data source matters. Just like when you read the news, you want to know where it comes from. It, it turns out you can actually do this with connected devices. There's a technique that spies used to use called steganography. It's a way of embedding data in another form of data that's almost completely hidden. And so there's a lot of work going on around this right now. And so this is uh, out of a paper that will be published in IEEE Security and Privacy next month. And it's about how do we embed metadata and basically say, uh, what device output this audio into whatever signal output we create from this webcam so that then we can block it. That way, my webcam can't unlock my door if someone compromises it. We build a new air gap using advanced cybersecurity. And the last element we'll get into really 
briefly, and then I'll wrap up with some details of the program and then we'll give time for questions, is blockchain. Blockchain is basically a distributed ledger. Um, it's distributed across a network of multiple different computers. There are a couple different elements to it. There's a record keeping system that's write only, so you can't delete or modify blocks. There's cryptography to make sure that your blocks, at least nominally, are secured. Um, there's consensus, so the blocks need to agree with each other to make sure that things haven't been uh, mutated or changed. And then there are things like shared contracts, right, so that everyone has a common understanding of, of what's written to the ledger and what it means. And so that enables things like digital contracts where you can write and digitally sign the contract and it's executed only if certain conditions are met or things like uh, blockchain-based payment, things like Bitcoin or Ethereum. Really briefly, other deep tech areas, things like quantum computing, we won't get into it too much in the boot camp, but it is a fascinating area for exploration. Um, instead of bits that are zero or one, we look at quantum states. We do this by observing controlled particles uh, and that changes fundamentally the way that we implement computing algorithms. So now we can solve problems that are computationally hard. Um, there are a couple different problem classes in typical algorithms. P, problems that a conventional computer solves quickly or NP, where solving is slow but verification is easy. Quantum computing has the potential to make P equals NP uh, where we can actually solve these almost impossible problems very rapidly. Uh, but there are a suite of challenges around it, like does that undermine the blockchain that relies on computing being hard? There's probabilistic computing. So instead of bits being zero or one, um, there's a probability that a bit is one. And so this is much faster, but it also intentionally introduces noise into computing and makes neural networks learn from noisy data, which actually makes them stronger. From those two advances and rapidly paralyzing uh, things like GPUs, we see computational intelligence accelerating and approaching the human brain's capabilities. So we're building towards something like the singularity where computers eventually will have superhuman intelligence and creativity. Right? And to interact with these things, we need new interfaces. So that's where uh, we have conversational interfaces. So that's your Amazon Echo, your Google Home but also brain interfaces. And so this is research out of the lab that I was formerly a part of. Um, this is by Alex Ermengol Erpi uh, out of Sanjay Sarma's group. And with this, he could look at different, uh, different cover art for movies in VR and without using eye tracking, could figure out which one you were looking at and then open up the right video. It, it actually uses the brain response to a very fast flickering light, it's super cool. But, that's how we're going to have to interface with these new super advanced computers. So what are we gonna cover in the bootcamp proper? We're going to cover a lot of different technologies. Um, we'll cover all the ones that I talked about, but also several more. The goal is not that you're gonna be an expert in all of them. It's going to be that you have an awareness of the technologies and trends in deep tech. We'll expose you to literally dozens of different topics and then you can on your own time during the program dig deeply into the areas with hands-on labs um, and you will have a team project that's an opportunity for you to become a subject matter expert. So as a tentative topic list, this will give you a sense of what to expect. We've got radical innovation, IoT, networking platforms, sensing and actuators, AI, machine learning, cybersecurity, blockchain, RFID, automated vehicles, virtual reality. In terms of labs, you'll learn about breadboarding, Arduino, Raspberry Pi, sensors, actuators, plotting data, building a blockchain, you will implement your own self-driving vehicle as part of a team and you'll build a VR application. 
And while you're doing this, you won't be sleeping. You will also be working on a team project. So writing an elevator pitch for a potential company, doing an executive summary, creating a final pitch, and demonstrating a prototype of your most critical technology. We have a number of great speakers lined up. So Sanjay Sarma will be joining us uh, throughout the program. So he's a professor of mechanical engineering at MIT. He's also vice president for open learning. He founded the Auto ID Labs and helped to standardize RFID and create IoT. We have Fadal Adib joining us. He's a professor or an assistant professor at the MIT Media Lab. He does fascinating work with wireless perception, networking, and sensing. Um, and his research was actually the focus of an entire episode of The Big Bang Theory. We have Brian Subarana, who's now the director of the MIT Auto ID Lab. He's a research scientist at MIT. He's a lecturer at the Harvard Extension School, and he works with RFID, blockchain, conversational commerce, and AI. We have Sirtesh Karaman coming in. He's an associate professor in Aero Astro at MIT. He works with robotics and automated vehicles and co-founded Optimus Ride. And we have Georgios Papas coming in. Uh, he's an expert and published author in VR and AR using Unity. He's developed a number of different games. He, uh, he works at the Open University of Cyprus, uh, and he's a PhD candidate at NTUA in Athens right now. He graduated the 2017 IoT bootcamp, and he and I are now working on a couple different papers together on self-driving vehicles uh, and VR. So in conclusion, right, coming back to that definition, deep tech is risky, hard, only recently possible, solves a real problem, and it's not yet ubiquitous. It's enabled uniquely by advances in sensing, computation, networking, energy storage, and artificial intelligence. Deep tech solves a range of different problems. And if we're doing things right, deep tech eventually becomes boring. Um, the summary of the program at MIT in June is that it's going to be true to mens et manus, Latin for mind and hand, which is the school motto. Students will get their hands dirty working with deep tech. Uh, and the pace is similar to this presentation, but the technical content is going to be much deeper. So now we've got about nine minutes for questions and I'm gonna come back to this panel here. So if you have other questions, please submit them. Um, okay, so we've got, uh, I'm learning how to use this panel right now. <laughs> okay, what kind of projects can we expect at the bootcamp? Uh, you will work with a team of approximately eight people uh, and you will develop an elevator pitch, a business plan, an executive summary, and you'll implement a technical prototype for the most critical module of some deep technology using a kit of parts we provide. Um, let's see what else we have here. Recommended materials to read beforehand. We assume that you have a little bit of familiarity with basic programming concepts. Uh, and so that would be understanding what a function is, what a variable is, very simply how to use a breadboard. It doesn't need to be that complicated. We assume that we need to provide a lot of context and everyone, everyone comes with their own unique background and that makes the teams really special and work really well together. Uh, so if you are familiar with the fundamentals, you don't need much more information than that, but you will need a laptop running Linux, Windows, or Mac OS with admin privileges. Um, Okay, so questions about the logistics of applying to the bootcamp are probably best for the website, uh, emailing it there. Uh, man, too many questions. <laughs> okay, so how many people are attending? Uh, I think the program is going to be somewhere on the order of 80 to 90. Um, we have a lot of questions about sustainability, the environment, 
and environmental threats using deep tech. Those are wonderful application areas for deep technology. There's a lot of potential there. Um, for example, I know that low power wide area networks are being used in forests in Colombia so that they can detect loggers and minimize disruption from logging. Uh, so you can deploy those things from drones, you can get your 10 year battery life on there and share a lot of rich data about what's going on in a forest. That's just one opportunity. You know, this, this program really looks more at what are the enablers and we want you to bring your own problems to it so that we can solve them together. Um, we will pick teams for you in the program. Uh, can anyone join the boot camp? There's an application process. There is uh, a quiz that you need to take. Uh, I don't know if you'll be able to connect with other students beforehand. You won't know your teams until you're there. You can pursue an idea on your own, but it's best if you work with your team to come up with an idea that everyone uh, is, is equally interested and disinterested in, because otherwise the dynamics get a little bit complicated if you're really deeply passionate about something. And it also gets really complicated from an IP side. Who owns the patents if you all work on it together, right? So generally we encourage people not to come there saying this is the problem that I'm specifically going to solve and instead come with an open mind, learn the process and then reapply later on their own. Um, I don't think we're going to offer this same course again in 2019. The presentation and the slides will be posted. Uh, what else do we have? How can you specialize in deep tech in an academic context? That is a fascinating question and one that, that my own students struggle with a little bit. And it comes back to the opening of the presentation where I said, and this is sage wisdom from Professor Sanjay Sarma, who imparted it on me and now I'm sharing it with you, be faithful to the problem, not the discipline. Um, in academia, depending on where you are, you may be boxed into a particular program, and that's not how the world works these days. So learn, read, follow things outside your own discipline, implement them. Um, that's how we solve the problems in, in the best way. Right? We draw across disciplines and take the best of all worlds. Uh, okay, I think that that largely answers the questions that we have here. Okay, a uh, question about quantum computing and AI and probabilistic computing, that's gonna totally reinvent the way that we think about it right now. Neural networks are gonna be implemented very differently, but there's also things like neural compute engines that are basically hardware neural networks. Um, MIT's done a lot of work with that. They've also done work on light-based neural networks, but I think that the concept of a threshold logic unit or a perceptron is going to be functionally different when you implement on different computing environments. Uh, okay. What else do I have in the list? I, I think we got that one. Um, if you come to the deep tech program, you will be able to tour around the campus on your own time. Oh, there, there are questions in the chat too. Uh, 5G and 6G. We will cover 5G in the program. Um, we mentioned it briefly here. We'll talk about the challenges of millimeter wave and we'll, we'll separate hype from reality. What is 5G promising to do and what is it actually doing? And it actually turns out that the 5G phones that are for sale today are either proprietary standards owned by the network, so they're not true 5G, or they're a blend of 4G and 5G because we don't have the right type of antennas in the phones just yet. 
uh, in terms of AI, we don't have a lot of hands-on uh, during the program. You will be able to implement it on your own. Um, we generally work with TensorFlow, TensorFlow and Keras, if we do that. But if your project for your team requires AI, it's up to you what tool chain to use. We go over the fundamental concepts of it, but the self-driving car race, um, that's open CV functions for the most part. In terms of online resources to get prepared for the bootcamp, obviously MIT Open Learning has a lot with edX. They've got a ton of programs on uh, developing software for microcontrollers. They've got a professional ed program on IoT, uh, but also there are tutorials on SparkFun and Adafruit, and those are remarkably good for providing the background you need to get up to speed with the hardware we'll be using. We'll be working with Arduino, we'll be working with Raspberry Pi. If you know SSH, you'll be a step ahead. Uh, but everyone's going to get their hands dirty doing everything. So there's going to be software, there's going to be hardware. Um, we'll probably have a couple 3D printers on site. There actually was a question about 3D printing and additive manufacturing. That is deep technology. We're not going to go into it very deep in the program, but I think it's another major disruptor. Uh, the boot camp is six days. You will provide your own accommodation during the boot camp. Uh, Okay, any other pressing questions? All right, well, thank you all for attending. Hopefully you learned something and had a little bit of fun. And uh, I hope to see many of you in Cambridge in June.